Hello and welcome to the Samungos podcast. This is episode 50 and this is part two of our interview with Aaron Kilborn on humanitarian medicine. Now, Aaron is on a mission in Gaza at present and we managed to get a call with her very recently just to get an update on her current mission and we've added that in at the end of this podcast. So I hope you enjoy that. Let's just jump right back into the main interview. And I saw you give a talk one time uh, speaking about the sexual violence clinic mm. and you spoke about a very harrowing experience where yeah. you, they made you watch a video. Do you mind just telling us that? Because that, that is quite difficult to listen to. Yeah. Um, so we had um, an, a lady arrive with a young girl. Um, the lady was in her 60s. She was this young girl's grandmother. The little girl was about eight or nine. And the story they were telling, and this was being translated for me by the midwife who was with me. The story they told was that they had been traveling in a bus from one of the rural districts to come to the city because there'd been an increase in fighting from where they'd been. And they were coming to try and get refuge in the city. And the bus was stopped along the way near a forest by a bunch of armed men. And all the women and girls were marched off the bus at gunpoint. And several of the women were picked out of a lineup And one of them was this grandmother's daughter, so this little girl's mother. And she was then murdered in front of them. And the grandmother, meanwhile, had had her phone out and was filming this all in the hope that she could get justice for this. And so the little girl had witnessed this, as had this grandmother. And then they had both been raped, um, along with all the other women that were surviving. Somehow, they'd managed to get away and make their way back to the city. But this was sort of several weeks delay. And so the little girl was completely shell-shocked. And this grandmother obviously was just wild with her anger and her... Grief. Grief, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I nothing could have prepared me, nor for the story and the violence of the story, but having that imagery put in front of me as well. And it's very, very difficult to then stay professional and kind of keep in mind that your priority at that point is looking after those two women and that 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 little girl who's sitting there completely mute and immobile and obviously is completely affected by all of this but doesn't know how to react and and making sure that they're physically well in the first instance and then making sure that you have the kind of continuity of care in terms of sort of psychological support and follow-up but in a context and in a country where you don't really have psychiatrists and you don't really have child psychiatry never mind for the adults and that's very hard and I the thing that cinched it for me was I I I came out of the office and went into okay sorry I came out of the clinic room and went into the office and one of my colleagues was in the office and I broke down in tears and I was so upset by the scenario and he came over to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he asked me what happened. And when I told him, he turned to me and he said, ah, well, but my sister, that's life. And I, <laughs> I was so angry. I remember just turning to him and saying, how dare you? Like, that's life. That can't be life. You can't justify this. That shouldn't be justifiable ever. And to put that into context, my colleague was a Congolese guy where he comes from a country where, you know, the the, the kind of prevalence of rape is exponentially high. And what the numbers that we see reported are just the tip of the iceberg, you know, like they're, it, it's pervasive and it's used as a weapon of war and it's a it's used as a power tool to control populations. 
and it's hideous. And yet it's kind of been normalized by some people because that's the only way that they can deal with it. So for them, it sadly is kind of life. a way of life yeah. or life at the moment. Yeah. And just to emphasize, I don't know if the, the audience picked that up, that they showed you the video yeah. of the murder. That that was the thing. And, and I'm sure you probably didn't want to watch it, but it was probably necessary to understand what had happened and probably rude not to when they're they're wanting to show you the video so that must have been extremely tough and not surprising that that, that you found that very emotional is that something that still recurs even to this day i kind of do, do, do you have any sort of post-traumatic stress do you find memories nightmares do things come back to kind of replay a bit in your mind i think of course they do um from following on from that incident, I was sent back to the home base and told by my kind of uh, boss, I guess, um, the medical coordinator um, in the headquarters, essentially, don't don't go back to the hospital for a couple of days. You need you need some R and R. You need a bit of a step back. I got a phone call from the psychology support cell in Paris as well, and follow up emails from them. And then they obviously, anytime you go to a war zone or an area where you have a very high mortality rate, like one of the Ebola programs, for instance, all the expat staff that are returning from those programs have to have a debrief with the psych cell, and you are offered ongoing psychological support when you go back to your home country. And MSF, do, and there's no time frame on that. So if I were to contact MSF office now and say, even the ones in London, and say to them, "Hey guys, look." I'm really struggling. They will put me into um, kind of a talking therapy, or if you know whatever it is that I want. Essentially, they will well, they will help to facilitate. That. I didn't realize that. Yeah, probably a lot that the NHS could learn. I mean, I'm not. I know our experiences are different, but they can still be very very stressful. But it, mm. uh, there's probably a lot to learn. That, that's that's it's wonderful just that they even, support you so much. Yeah, and it's not even just the medical kind of psychology support they even they have what they call a kind of return volunteer network as well where they'll have people who who've been in the field and who know what it's like and they will they'll phone you at some point when you come back and just sort of get a pulse check and just see how are you and ask you to just talk about your mission and you don't have to you can say no thank you I don't really want to talk about it right now and they'll offer to call you back again maybe a month down the line or a few weeks down the line um or not at all depending on what you want and the the, the nice thing about that is it's somebody who doesn't know you and who wasn't with you, but who's not going to judge you and who also still understands. Because the problem when you're trying to come back and talk to family and friends is that they, they often, don't, get, they it, don't yeah. get it. Some people will ask you, well, how was your trip away? You're like, well, it wasn't a holiday, guys. You know, there was... Watch this video that was <laughs> harrowing that you can't imagine. Yeah, no. It's... And you're also conscious that you don't want to be the killjoy at the party. You know, when you get invited over to a friend's house for dinner and they're kind of asking, so tell me all about it. And Full you're thinking, right, well, I don't really want to tell this story and this story. And, and you're trying to also relativize what you consider maybe mundane, you know, pe- topics of conversation like oh well the gourmet coffee i like was run out of the supermarket the other day i'm devastated and you're thinking who gives a shit about that yeah. sorry <laughs> that's okay but uh yeah and what what do you think you've learned about yourself wow i think i mean i think that you you learn so much that sometimes you don't even necessarily realize it as you go forward i think you learn certainly about your own resilience and about what you can cope with I've definitely learned that I need sleep. <laughs> I don't function very well on very little sleep. Um, and, you know, you definitely need to take a bit of time away and do things that make you feel good and have a bit of recovery time, you know, a bit of 
bit of you time and even in a context that can be where you're living in a hospital corridor 24 7 and it's the same hospital where you work like go up on the roof for a couple of hours sit and watch the sunset you know just do something that takes you away from that space is really really important um and even that I take that also into my work here you know because we work a really grueling rota and it's a really tough environment at times and so just you know being able to kind of switch off from that and do something that's completely non-medical completely not nothing to do with with your professional life is really really important and whether that's just chatting to a friend or going and doing an activity like a sporting activity or something it's really really important and what impact has all of this had on your life Let, let's think about relationships and family is has it had an impact is it caused difficulties challenges or has it been okay so I have lost and gained and then lost relationships over the course of you know my humanitarian career up to date um sometimes those relationships can be challenged by the fact that maybe your partner isn't in that world and doesn't understand um or it's it's almost like if your partner is in that world and does get it, but it's like a sort of addictive drug and they don't maybe want to take a step out of that. And they don't really know how to kind of normalize um, after being in that kind of environment. You know, I had a, I had a big fallout with uh, a previous partner when we came back home from a long mission because we went to a wedding and he got very upset by the lavish expenses of this wedding because he's like, he, he couldn't normalize that or relativize that and sort of stop thinking about the fact that the budget for the wedding would have potentially paid for the hospital for three months or something, that you know? That must be such a natural reaction. Of course it is. But you also have to be able to kind of yeah, separate yourself separate from that yeah. because, because you love your family and your friends and you want to be able to have these joyful occasions with them too, you know, and, and share that in a kind of normal way if you can. So yeah, it, that, that can be a source of, um, friction and misunderstanding um but I think generally as long as you're very open in your communications and you try and kind of express how you're feeling and what you're going through and try and let them in I think is is the most important thing particularly if it's somebody who's not from that world and what about your career because obviously this has interrupted your career quite a bit uh yeah you nearly (laughs) finished your A&E training isn't that right how how has that whole process been challenging smooth what would, what would you say to others who might be interested in this line of work? Well, I would say that there's many different paths to get to the top of the mountain. Um, you need a good foundation before you try and go and do anything. So finish your medical school years and finish your foundation years and then, and then do a bit more because I think ultimately you need to be able to go with something to offer. And you also need to be able to go and be confident in your decision making and your clinical skills because you're probably going to be in an environment where you may be the one that's responsible and where the buck stops with you. Now, I'm not to say that you're not going to have support and you can't ask questions. We have telemedicine where you can ask for advice from Paris and from other specialties. And you're not you're never there on your own. You know, you're usually with other medical staff, whether you're in a surgical program with anesthetists and surgeons or or other nurses or midwives or whatever, you're always going to be there and, and, and you have a team to bounce stuff off and, and local medical staff too. But, you know, you need to be able to be strong and confident in your own clinical skills. What I would say is that um, over the years, I've not done the sort of classical training. So I essentially... Um, have, I'm doing what's called a Caesar CP. So it's where I'm now in a higher specialty training program, uh, whereas I've been granted an, an out of program experience to be able to go and do this period of work in Gaza. Um, that takes a lot of organisation and you have to be able to justify um, why it is that you're doing this, what it is you're going to gain and so on. So you need to be relatively um, clear in your communication with your 
your your colleagues and with your supervisor and the training program director and so on as to what the benefits for you personally are going to be but also you can apply that to the organization and actually if you're smart you match it to what the training program requirements are so you can say actually it's going to give me this management experience that I'm never going to get here or you know there's ways of, of doing it um one thing that many organizations will always ask for as well as experience so I think if you can get a foot in the do- door early on early days you know so doing the volunteer work I did in Sri Lanka very early on in my life was a really good thing for me to have done for two reasons. One, because it showed that um, I'm capable of living in a really different environment that's very alien to my comfort zone and from where I'm from. But two, it also shows other organizations that I have the ability to, you know, survive and thrive in that kind of environment uh, and that I'm not going to kind of freak out after a couple of months and be crazy homesick or, you know, that I'm not going to be able to function. So that's really important because they kind of want to know that you're going to be okay. You may be the best specialist in your field. That doesn't mean that you're going to be good at working in an overseas environment where the resources are going to be very different from what you're used to. If you're used to working in a really multi uh, functional kind of trauma center level three where you've got all the access to all the singing and dancing scanners and all the different drugs and all the different kit and equipment if you're then working in a very small emergency unit in you know rural drc you're not going to have access to those things if you're very lucky you've got an x-ray machine maybe even an ultrasound but that's going to maybe be it in terms of imaging and for the rest of it you're going to have to be very dependent on your clinical skills and you don't have access to all the blood tests maybe your biochemistry um, assays have run out or you've only got three so you've got to decide who's going to get them you know so you need to be quite good at like task prioritization and being able to kind of fish out which patients you want to do what for and why and justify that you know. So I think that's why I say go with a bit of experience under your belt. But I don't think that you need to wait till you're absolutely past post-CCT, which some people would advocate for. Because I think that there's lots of things you can offer even if you've done your, you know, your basic ACCS training or CMT or whatever. There are better opportunities for shorter missions for specialists from surgery, anesthetics, ops and gynae and so on. They will ask you to be a specialist before you go with them. Okay, Aaron. So thank you very much. I once saw you give a talk on what it means to be a humanitarian. So is this for everyone, or what? What? Tell us what 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 make what are the skills or what what are the what do you think it takes to be someone who will thrive in these sorts of environments? That's a really good question. It's still one that I don't really have a succinct answer to. Um, I would say that you can look at definitions of what it is to be a humanitarian, and you know. Dr. Google and Professor Wikipedia will give you a variety of different formal definitions that can be things like an active belief in the value of human life, whereby humans practice benevolent treatment and provide assistance to other humans in order to better humanity. And this can be for moral, altruistic and logical reasons. Or it can be defined as the philosophical belief in a movement towards the improvement of the human race in a variety of areas. And that can be used to describe a wide number of activities relating specifically to human welfare. Now, those are dictionary definitions okay what I would say is that there's there is a lot of truth in that and humanitarianism doesn't just apply to you know going and giving medical assistance there are lots of different programs out there that could be you know considered to be humanitarian but I think for me it's more it's more individual and it varies according to the individual people and also to the individual kind of programs that you're trying to offer um and and provide um absolutely can you learn the skills that you need yes is it for everybody absolutely not I think the key issue for me in terms of whether or not you're the right person to go is what's your driving factor what's what's your 
passion. Why are you doing it? If you're doing it to escape your own reality in life, that's maybe not the right thing to go and do. Because are you going to go there with a really sound mind to be able to work in an environment that's really, really challenging and tough and that's going to throw up potentially lots of really difficult situations that you might need to face? Like some of the things I've faced in some of the places I've worked, you know, um, dealing with the different kinds of relationships with your international team and overcoming those barriers and delivering healthcare to people that you know might be a terrorist, for example. So understanding your own underlying values and knowing what you're able to deal with and what you're able to not deal with. You may not know that until you go, but I think having an understanding of where you're at before you go is very important. So I'd say that that's a good starting point is know why you're doing it. And what are the skills you think I remember again watching you speak before and there were kind of four skills that, mm. that were not not all that is required but important to you so what 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 were those I'll ask that again because I'll yeah. shade as well <clears throat> so I have down here good communication yeah, flexibility and creativity resilience yeah. understanding your vulnerabilities and yeah. weaknesses Are you happy to yeah go through that? I'll go through that yeah so are there any specific skills that you think are important? I know there's going to be lots and lots, but I remember listening to you once before and you spoke about four specific ones. What were they? So I would start with good communication. Um, I think that's essential in any work environment, especially if you work in healthcare, but not just in a healthcare setting. Um, in working overseas, you're going to be working with a very international team and maybe it's not going to be with a team that all speaks a common language. You might be speaking with people who, whose command of, say, English is their second language, it's the third language, or you're working through a translator. So there will be errors in communication. Um, and that can even happen when you've got people from the same, uh, who speak the same language, but who come from different cultural contexts. You know, somebody from Scotland speaking to somebody from the US, they're not necessarily going to always understand each other because colloquial dialect can differ as well. So being very clear about what your meaning is can be quite important. Um Added to that, you know, you need to be able to communicate exactly what it is in a, in a sort of emergency situation that you're wanting and be very clear about that too. And understanding what is an emergency, you know, um, so especially when you're going to these high stress environments. Um, the other thing I'd say, and this is a bit more interesting, uh, is in some ways is your flexibility and your creativity. So the example I used earlier of coming from a tertiary care center where you're used to working in a really, really fancy trauma unit and you've got access to all the kit and caboodle and all these really well-trained staff around you. Um, I've worked uh, in CAR where we started to run out of equipment and we started to run out of supplies because the international supply order had been cancelled at one point because we were thinking that we were going to pull back from the hospital. Now, the decision was made not to, but of course then we need to redo the order, but it takes months for that order to arrive and then for all the orders to be put together and then shipped out to us. So we started to run out of sterile dressings and bandages and we were a trauma centre, right? So that's kind of an integral piece of kit. More stress. Mm. <laughs> so we discovered that the abdominal packaging and abdo abdominal compresses that we use for some of the major kind of... Uh, GI surgery are really, really good for covering large surface area burns if you like layer the gel in it enough underneath it. So it's just things like think outside the box a bit or if you've got access to um, sterilization kits, you can actually do a lot with non-sterile stuff and you can sterilize it, for example. But just having that idea of, okay, we don't have X, Y and Z. Can we use PQRS and how can we do that? And it's about being a bit creative in your approach to things and particularly 
in your in your approach to how you deal with people because it may not be that you know the things that you're used to doing or the way that you're used to doing it is going to work in this particular environment so coming up with a way that people might respond to say a call for vaccinations in a place where they're really 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 suspicious of foreign people coming in using kind of local people and um, as sort of health promoters to go in and talk to people about it and then trying as much as possible to use local staff so that the, that suspicion of the kind of foreign people coming in and trying to do something terrible and witchcrafty that gets lessened a bit and you have to try and gain the trust of a local community so it, it's that kind of stuff that's really really going to make or break um the, the ability of you to be able to really um provide the care that you want to in some cases and i'd say the third one is resilience we bandy this word about a lot and i think it kind of gets overused a bit too um it's not about just putting up with all the crap it's about understanding what your red line is and what you are going to be able to cope with and how well you can recover from very stressful situations and uh, kind of intense environment um, where you're working very, very hard, long hours. Um, you might have a lot of a very high mortality rate around you. There might be, you know, disease processes or, or, or certain types of injuries um, that you find are really, really challenging to deal with. Or it's just the context, like the political context can be really tough. You know, um, when I was in Syria, we were seeing blast victims coming in because people were returning to their homes in Raqqa and the city had been booby trapped by ISIS before they had left. So that's very difficult, you know, when you've got families, entire families sometimes being either really, really gravely injured or, or, or entirely destroyed. Um, and that has a psychological impact on, you know, you, of course it does. So understanding that and knowing, you know, what you need to do for your own kind of psychological first aid and self-help is really important, but also knowing that you can have a team around you and you can kind of work together to work through those things. That's really, really, that's part of resilience, I think. Um, I'd also say that that comes into the same as understanding your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. And I think part of that is also, I would add to that, is adding in understanding your own prejudices. And I think that that becomes more important when you go to places which are, again, very politically charged. Um, you know, it, and it's not necessarily prejudices, you know, like racism or prejudices where you believe that a certain part of the world is not going to provide as good quality care as what we do here. That may be true, but it may not be limited. The limiting factor may not be the knowledge or the motivation of the staff. It may be just that it's an area that's been so chronically underfunded, but they're very motivated and they really want to improve. Or maybe the, the education that they've had hasn't been top notch and you're, you can go there and you can top that up and you can get them to this higher standard. So, it's understanding that too, I think is really, really important for you to really get the best out of the project that you're going to, but also to provide the best you that you can give to the mission. So many, many thanks to Erin and you'll hear from her one last time in our final part of this series, hopefully in the next week or two. I will say my goodbyes now, but we're about to play for you just a short update interview that we did with Erin very, very recently over a call to Gaza. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so through the power of technology, and we spoke about this when I was speaking to you in the UK before you left, but there obviously is uh, increasing technology uh, throughout the world and on all, on all your missions. And here we are now having a, a Zoom chat uh, in Gaza. So it's great to have uh, Aaron Kilburn. Aaron, welcome from Gaza. Hello. <laughs> So uh, when we last spoke, the world was a very, very different place. Uh, you've been there, what now, three months? 
yeah, since the end, uh, end, middle end of February, yeah. Wow, fantastic. Well, look, this is just a wee update. We just wanted to find out a little bit from you whilst you're there. So what, what have you been doing? Where are you? Kind of describe your current mission and what, what it's been like for the past few months. Yeah, so um, I am currently in Gaza City, which is probably the main city in the Gaza Strip. Um, it's a population of about almost 2 million in, a, in an area of about 360 kilometers squared, so quite densely populated. Um, we're not far from the beach, beautiful Mediterranean Sea. Um, and here we have uh, a big team of people working together to treat patients with um, burns and who have uh, been victims of uh, trauma and are struggling along with their chronic bone infections and osteomyelitis. So we have an antibiotic stewardship program, uh, trauma surgery, and we do burns care as well. And that's in collaboration with uh, teams that are also uh, set up by the Ministry of Health. So we're working together with local staff um, as well as our MSF uh, teams. And what's your typical day? So I'm here as the medical activity manager. I have a very wonderful team of doctors. I've got um, 11 GP doctors with uh, very varied backgrounds, um, two orthopedic surgeons, three anesthetists, and an antibiotic stewardship doctor who's an internal medicine specialist. And essentially we run four outpatient clinics where we do dressing changes um, and nursing care. We do sort of general medical care for those patients. We have a very amazing team of physios who incidentally have trained the MSF physios also in Amman and in Syria through sometimes through face-to-face uh, -face contact, but also long distance training. So using that technology again, it's wonderful. And um, we do sort of pain clinics with, uh, with our anesthetists who are brilliant in managing chronic pain. And we also have our inpatient department where we have our uh, surgical teams working for the osteomyelitis cases. And then we work together with the Ministry of Health team based in Shifa Hospital in the burn unit there where we do uh, burns care, debridement, skin graft, dressings and so on as well. So what's been your high point so far? Well, the amazing thing about MSF and using modern technology, that seems to be a theme in this podcast, um, is that we have been given this wonderful opportunity, despite the lockdown that we're all suffering from in the world at the moment, to do some ongoing medical education. Now, that's very difficult for the teams in Gaza to have access to, because even in normal circumstances, access into and out of the Gaza Strip for medical staff is very challenging. And what we've got is a team of um, diagnostic imaging specialists based in New York and a few different European cities who've been helping to train um, the team here with my help and the help of one of my GP doctors who's a surgical resident to do point of care ultrasound. So over about four or five weeks, we are doing uh, modules on eFAST, on lung ultrasound, and specifically looking at ultrasound changes that you might see in COVID patients, because this is going to be part of our response to help with the, in an eventual kind of outbreak in Gaza. So far, just as an aside, we haven't got any positive cases within Gaza yet. We've got, not seen any community transmission, um, which is a wonderful thing, because I think it would be a big problem if it did hit here. Um, and then in addition, we're doing the kind of cardiovascular uh, ultrasound and uh, imaging for soft tissue and osteomyelitis. And that's really cool. So it's been an amazing uh, thing to be able to offer the, the team here. Uh, it's been wonderful to have the support from our headquarters to be able to realize that. And it's a bit of an experiment because they have never done this as a distance learning course before. They tend to send an ultrasound specialist to the field to do it. So we're doing this all via online based learning, uh, telemedicine. Uh, video lectures and then practical work with the ultrasound because the doctor I'm working with, Sarah, she and I both are used to using the ultrasound and we know how to do eFast. 
So we're expanding our own skills as well as helping uh, helping our team here. It's really cool. And it sounds like so far it's extremely positive. So this might be the yeah. way of the future. And of course, you can reach so much more people than relying on you know sending people out. Uh, so that's yeah. fantastic. Uh, you mentioned there are COVID-19, so you have no cases. What's the reason for that? So um, at the moment, we don't have any community transmission that we can that, that we're aware of. Um, touch wood that that doesn't change anytime soon, but it may. Um, the way that the government has kind of focused on, uh, the Ministry of Health has focused on, on the COVID response is really in prevention. So what they are doing at the moment is that um, people coming into Gaza from outside, so there's a number of different border crossings, so the main one being uh, with, between Egypt and Gaza. Uh, what they have is a sort of very strict quarantine measures and testing. So pre or pre-entry, you have to do a test, a PCR test, it has to be negative. And then you have about three weeks of a quarantine that you have to do, undergo. And then you do a test again prior to being released from that quarantine, which also is negative. So it's it's quite strict, but so far they, they have had a number of positive cases picked up at quarantine who've all been very stable and relatively well. There's not been any really sick patients that we're aware of, but they are also working together with us to try and set up what would be their response. So there's a hospital that's been identified as the main center where they would send patients who've been tested positive in kind of uh, reception centers around um, for anybody where somebody who had symptoms would go to to get testing and stay until they get a negative or positive test and then be kind of transferred to the hospital for treatment. So it's so far, as I said, no positive cases in the community. Um, so that's it. Let's just hope that it stays that way. Yeah. Uh, any low points on this particular mission? I think the major challenge for me, and this, this kind of ties in nicely with the sort of major learning points from, from this mission in particular, have just been in the challenges of the kind of operational decision making that can be quite complex in particular when you're uh, collaborating with multiple different international organizations uh, or even within different sort of sections of MSF. Um, and then in addition with that, kind of trying to, to make things work with um, a Ministry of Health and a government that's not always exactly clear in, in, in what they're policy is to be and so that can be really really hard especially when you you feel like it maybe has an impact on patient care um so it's it's a bit you know it's a bit of a challenge for us um there's for example the 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 trauma patients the osteomyelitis cases they they tend to be managed by lots of different people and part of that is sort of patient shopping they go to lots of different actors for advice um and that's just typical of, of of one of the things that they do here not just for trauma, but for lots of other healthcare problems. Um, but there's also lots of different organizations here offering different types of care. And so sometimes you end up sharing a patient between three different organizations and that, that can be a little bit difficult then to coordinate who does what in the care. So yeah, we found that definitely very difficult. And I think when we spoke here in Glasgow, we'd, we'd mentioned that there's obviously every mission you can learn something new about yourself, about humanitarian medicine in general, about life in general. So anything specifically stand out in this mission, anything you've learned about yourself or, or about humanitarian work in general? I think uh, what's been very interesting on this mission is that um, already we work with incredibly complex patients. So already the system and the setup here is challenging um, because of this, what I mentioned already with these osteomyelitis patients as a start. Uh, secondly, there's major challenges um, also looking after the burns patients. And added to that now, we have this sort of the threat of this COVID pandemic as well that's obviously uh, impacting everybody globally. That's had a major impact on our ability to bring in expertise uh, and bring in new expats. So when we've had somebody leave the field, it's been very difficult for them to be replaced. 
And in some cases, we haven't been able to get a replacement at all. Um, for me personally, um, being the, man- the medical manager in these conditions is just difficult because it feels like every single week something's changing. So we've had to drastically change the setup for our clinics. Uh, we've had to drastically change the setup for our inpatient care. Um, for a while, we kind of had to stop doing that. Um, we're about to restart that again. And then combining that with managing the, the training, which has been really intense as well. It just feels like you're juggling balls and breathing fire and swallowing swords all at the same time while standing on your head. So I'm, I'm learning that I'm not that bad at multitasking, but that eventually it is exhausting and you sometimes need a wee day off, which is why I'm able to speak to you today on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're very grateful. And uh, finally, I'll let you go because I know you're busy. Um, when are you back? Are you back in the end of June? Back in July. Yeah. So meant to be leaving here end of June and so I'll be back in Scotland in July uh, and starting back up uh, working for the NHS again at the beginning of August. So this podcast will go out uh, or this little recording will go out long before you're home. So any little shout outs you want to give <laughs> to family, <laughs> colleagues, anything you want to say to anyone who might be listening? Oh, to all of my a and team uh, in the Royal Infirmary and my, my, my A&E friends also from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow. I just want to say hello to you guys. Uh, much love to you all. And I hope you're all coping okay with the situation there. And just, yeah, to, to everybody, I hope I hope you just all um, stay well, stay safe, take care of yourselves, look after each other. And stay home and keep the doctors and nurses happy and we'll see you soon thank you